Hi, I'm Margie, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I have a small favor to ask you. If you're listening and haven't yet left a review, please do take just 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating and a little review as it really does make the world of difference. And you can also find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura and I'd love to see you there. So this week I met with the impossibly cool Gizzy ahead of her new book coming out, which is very exciting. And she's had one hell of a year, so I counted myself extremely lucky to get to sit down and talk all things edible with her. I learned lots of things I didn't know before, so I hope that means you will too. Here is today's episode. My guest today is Gizzy Erskine. Gizzy is a chef, a TV personality, a cookbook author, and now business owner. This has been an extremely busy year for Gizzy with the opening of her first ever permanent project, Mare Street Market in Hackney, which is a very cool food space that houses a restaurant, a deli, record shop, and a florist. On top of that, she also has a brand new book coming out called Slow. Of her cooking, Gizzy has said, Domestic goddesses have their place, but I'm a professional cook. Plus, I'm not domestic at all. My house always looks like a bomb's hit it. <laughs> Welcome, Gizzy. Hi, yep. That still stands. And so I'm actually living in a in a building site at the moment. Oh, so it's a, a literal building. A site. literal building site. <laughs> and it's been quite a year for you, hasn't it? How's it going? A lot going on. Um, I mean, that's just tipping the sort of surface of it. I mean, Mare Street's been very, very consuming part of it. You know, we've done... Um, I don't know. We've achieved so many amazing things there. You know, the space is not just a restaurant. There's like five or six different food spaces. And we have, you know, we're cooking great food and people are coming. And, you know, we've done what we set out to do. And But it's ever evolving. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard, hard project to kind of get to grips with. And on top of all of that, you've written a new book. Yeah, written a new book, Pure <laughs> Filth, which is now Filth, um, launching very soon as well. And uh, doing my house up. Wow, yeah. You, a, a bit. That's not, that's not a very well thought out year. <laughs> but going back to that quote in the introduction, I felt like in all my research, the sort of chef versus cook idea was something that came up in most interviews. Do you find that you are always having to explain your background in food? And why do you think that is? I think actually it's only a modern thing. When I first started, it was, you, you know, you're, you're the new Nigella, which is everyone who's a female has had that tag at some stage um and obviously we all adore Nigella she's one of my favorite people personally and you know professionally she's an absolute dream changed the way we've eaten in this country but I do a very different job to her you know I actually I'm on the front line cooking and uh in restaurants and and have done for over 15 years so it is a different a very different beast and you know, but I've also written a lot and I've had really good writing heritage. You know, I won an intern placement to work at BBC Good Food magazine. And that also sort of changes what, what I am. And for a long time, I, I, there, I was a sort of whole new commodity in food. Somebody who'd actually trained as a chef and worked in restaurants who was able to now work with other chefs. Um, and so then I started writing for all the big chefs. So it was, yeah, I've done, there's been a lot of like, different pathways to where I've got to now within it but really cool and I'm really yeah I do I feel like I do have to explain it 
I still feel like a lot of people don't know I'm an actual chef and that's frustrating. Um, I think a lot of people think I'm a blogger, which is really extra frustrating. <laughs> um, you know, or just, you know, the, the, what, the term I hate the most, and I, you know, I'm probably the person who should wear it more than others is, is TV cook. Okay. Because I just think, God, I do, you know, I've done quite a lot of telly, but I haven't done telly for three years. And I don't know, like, I just think I've always worked and it's not my number one job. You know, I've always been a, a chef and food writer. It's just, yeah. it's yeah. weird to be defined by something that isn't your main gig. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But then that's me just being a bit of a tip because actually, you know, I'm very privileged and I do know that as well. From everything I've read, your mum sounds like a really fantastic cook. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the first Desert Island dish. And mm-hmm. that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. It's quite a hard one to pin down for me, this, because my mum comes, you know, she comes with a lot of different ideas. She's never been the most conventional British cook, but, you know, I do have really fond memories of things like beef stews. Uh, shepherd's pie would probably be the one that would really stick out for me as, as the dish that I enjoy the most. But then also, that doesn't really define my mum's cooking, so I feel like it's doing her a disservice. She... she grew up around the world she's very bohemian she's always she's a brilliant brilliant cook and where everybody else was probably just starting to eat pizza and bolognese was maybe and curries were a bit radical my mum was taking it to the next level and we were eating I mean I remember like begging my mum to feed my friends fish fingers and chips <laughs> or like chops and peas I'm like mommy please can we just be, eat something normal because she'd feed like pad thai with like dried shrimps in it and or like you know some kind of nasi garang with you know dried little baby fishies and and people would come from school horrified at this <laughs> and almost there'd be a bit of contentiousness about it with her going <laughs> look, look at this it's a like, challenge yeah <laughs> i'm like you've got no idea how embarrassing this is you spent a lot of time in thailand growing up didn't we you? did uh, my mum had a, a boyfriend who had a company in wood veneer and they spent a lot of time out there so in the school holidays we'd go over oh. and it was great and that's kind of where i learned how to cook so i don't know it's got, I still, still go to go back to the question. I just, I can't actually pinpoint it, but I guess the dish that, that, that I would ask my mum to cook me as, you know, on the, that desert island would probably be shepherd's pie. That's a very good option. Yeah. <laughs> and your, it was your mum that did really nurture a love of food in you, didn't, didn't she? Because yeah. you had two sisters who weren't that interested in food. And so it was like a real bond between you and your mum. I wouldn't say that they weren't interested. They just have a different, kind of focus my mum and I we made it our thing and she is truly as as into cookery as I am you know she will she's so in the zone with it and um when she was away I didn't enjoy the food that we were getting fed at home because we were quite young and I just was like teach me how to cook I want to be able to cook this and also I remember the first time I did it my sister was sick and I wanted to cook one of these dishes that Cora loved and so I phoned her up and she taught me through how to do it and it was uh I cooked it for her and it was a success and she was really grateful and suddenly I'm like oh this is quite good for the ego as well (laughs) how old would you have been then 12 or 13 I think so you know and I've said this before my my mum's a single parent you know three girls and from the age of like eight or nine we were all set to work in the kitchen because she had no choice she needed she was working full-time like I said she needed help yeah so we were little skivvies for her and we worked very very hard to make that family run that family sort of unit run well so I don't really remember ne- ever not cooking anyway so it was later on in life when in Thailand you know my sisters would always turn they it's not that they don't love food because they do and they love eating out and they love 
they they sort of live by their stomachs also but they don't eat fish they don't eat game they don't eat offal i would also get praised for eating everything you know so you're quite adventurous always really adventurous and i i you know i've always eaten everything my mom would be like god you're so good your sisters don't do this and you do <laughs> and you, you know so we shared this real love of stuff but then in my head i'm like the more i eat the different things i eat the better it is for my ego because oh, yeah. I'm like, I obviously had some huge ego that needed feeding. And then later on in life, you realize that by feeding people, you get congratulated and told you're amazing. It's like, oh, yeah. this is good. It's a good way of making friends. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> that, that brings us on nicely to the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Right. So the truth of this one is it was probably uh, jam tarts. <laughs> but I don't know if that's an actual dish. No, that definitely <laughs> counts. That's a good one. Um, but I never really liked jam tarts. So I was, I remember making them because it was just always like that fun cookery process before it was, you know, like I said, being up against the sink, peeling vegetables, chopping veg, helping make pastry, things like that. The first real dish I made, I think was probably, it was either, oh, I can't really remember. I think it was probably either a, a proper stew. Yeah. The process of that being, you know, the browning of the meat. And I remember just chopping all these ingredients up and like, being like, right, so we've got to brown this meat, seasoning it and browning it and then taking it out and then putting all this veg in and sort of like cooking that down a little bit and getting a bit of caramelization on it. And then flour, like what was flour doing going in there? That was just bananas to thicken it up. And then, you know, my, with my mum's classic one, she would never, she would have just put fresh stock over it, actually no booze. And then loads of herb going in there and then just leaving it in the oven for hours and it coming out like this amazing dish. And having to make mashed potatoes, which I always really enjoyed doing. That whole process is quite magical, isn't it? Really it? Like is. learning how to turn the ingredients. Into a lot something. of people get that out of um, baking. And I can really see why baking is, gives lots of people thrills. But it's never really given me the kicks that it has everyone else. I've always been involved in the process of technical cooking, um, make it, stock making, things like that. And that's because my mum always did. You know, after every roast dinner, we'd, she'd make a stock immediately. And we'd turn that into something else the next day. So, you know, or, or shepherd's pie would come after the lamb roast, you know, the next day. And I don't know, like, I, I just remember those techniques of, were always, they were, those were the magic, actually, the technical stuff, those slow cooking things. And yeah, I guess, I guess that that's where I probably get my kicks for that. Yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting. So Gizzy, your first job, and I didn't actually know this, was at a piercing studio in Camden. Yeah. You started on the reception and then moved to actually doing the piercing before becoming one of their best piercers. And you were there for seven years before you went to Leeds Cookery School. How did that come about? I mean, I've always been into rock and roll, you know, as a punk, street punk by the age of 14, 15, you know, little scallywag on the street being a bit of a nightmare, obnoxious nightmare. And uh, I... Went and started going out with the guy whose friend ran a piercing studio in Camden called Steel, which is where I was for years. And they were looking for a receptionist. Well, they were looking for an apprentice. And I went for the apprenticeship, but I was too young. And then, you know, within a few months of working on that desk, they let me start doing the sterilization and changing jewelry before I was started piercing. I did a three-year apprenticeship. And, you know, by within the seven years, I ended up running the whole place. So there's a lot that I really have to thank my boss back then for, which was teaching me about being meticulous, you know, really, really understanding detail and the, the who's and the why's and questioning what you're told all the time. Because actually, 
he was quite revolutionary in that industry and it's probably not something anyone ever really recognizes but he was involved with an association called the association of professional piercers which was an american company it was all that to to get piercing regulated and get it really you know because there was a lot of sharks out there doing terrible things in those days that passion and ambition for the greater good of it has really been instilled in me and, and like I said being meticulous those details which I really care about and wanting to be the best actually yeah has definitely paved the way for how I look at food and cookery and chefs so often like really good chefs are like that those details are the most important thing it's all yeah. the chefs which I'm which I think good chefs don't respect the ones which cut corners and you know don't don't really do things properly and like I said I've always got kicks that's maybe why I'm such enjoy such technical cooking you know that's so interesting isn't it that those you're in a completely unrelated industry and yet all of those lessons are completely transferable it's funny isn't it I've always found it really cool but and particularly being such like like you said completely like worlds apart as industries go and so then how how did it come about that you went to Leeds well, I was actually chefing. Um, I have a friend called um, Will Ricker. He has E&O. And I went in to see him and I was like, I really want to cook. You know, I really, really want to cook professionally. He's like, well, come and work with me for a bit. And at that stage, it was Ian Pengelly was in, at E&O. And so I did like, a, I guess, a, an extended stagiaire and then um, really enjoyed it. Came over with Ian when he opened Great Eastern Dining Rooms over here. Yeah. For a very short amount of time. And then went, so then Will just sat down and he said, I think you should do it. You're good. And I was like, okay. I mean, it was like, you know, I was very much, at, you know, somewhere between KP and Commie in those days. But went to Leith's and really loved it. Like it was, Leith's is a tricky one for me because it has a very strange reputation. Well, it's one of the best catering schools in possibly the world. It is private and it has a reputation for sort of bringing the chalet girl to the, to the Alps every year and... I didn't have that experience there. I think that there was, there was, though. did you go there? I didn't go there, but I think that is a very small part of what they do, isn't it? I mean, look, everyone there is expensive. It's a private school. I was looking at going to Westminster for three years or going to, to Leeds. I had a little bit of an inheritance, which I was very privileged to have from my grandma. And she wanted my mum to cook. My mum didn't do it fresh. My mum really wanted me to cook and I really wanted to cook. And, you know, so we put that money into going there. But it didn't even cover my fees. Um, piercing paid for me to go through school. And I just really didn't, I don't know, like everyone in there was looked after and supported. And I think because it's private, that was the, the deal. Yeah. So I think that I was, you know, either in the, in the younger classes, it was parents supporting children. And then the sort of like middle-aged group classes, it was either a partner. And towards the end, it was like career change. A lot of people have been in banking. Not everyone, of course, but I was a I was a rare commodity, somebody who'd actually paid for it themselves at twenty one, twenty two, and had worked really hard to. So that made me want to work really hard because I knew that I was getting myself through it my, myself, and I was broke. Yeah. I got evicted during Leeds, you know. I literally had to squat in my own flat because I was, you know, going to be thrown out on the streets because it took, you know, it was five days a week you know from eight in the morning until five at night and then you had to go and do um stagiaires in the evening or like work experience in the evening or you still had loads of homework to do it's intensive there's no messing around but it was brilliant it was magical it changed everything for me and you know it's the dream scenario it's like you're watching a demonstration all morning and you're cooking in the afternoon yeah literally the dream (laughs) so great (laughs) but i do recognize my privilege and i do despite finding it hard 
I do I do know that I was very lucky to be able to to have afforded to even pay for those fees. Yeah. But you 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 did, you know, you made that happen and I think there are so many different routes into cooking, aren't there? Like this is just one story of of how you got there. But... It's worked for me and I think for my brain and how I process things, it's really good. Like I I like, I need to know everything. So technique and, I've said this a lot, but technique, but understanding the whys and the science and the, you know, all of those details are how I, my brain works. So were you quite geeky at school or is this very much food orientated? I get fixated on certain things. So I've said this before, like if it was about kittens or sharks or, you know, towards the end, like bands, um, you know, I would know every mental detail you know but if it goes if it went and then that, I took that into cookery um and anything I get fixated about like I, I will want to know everything about you'd be um, very good on mastermind shark, sharks would be my mastermind yeah. subject <laughs> <laughs> it's actually like quite mental what's oh going God, on in my brain please can we make that happen <laughs> yeah I'd love to see that episode Gizzy, let's talk about the third desert island dish and that's the best dish you've ever eaten gosh I mean again it's I don't know how people like I can actually define these one things the best dish I've ever eaten is probably do you know what, one of the most memorable but that's not really the best I went to the Ritz I actually went to the Ritz last night which is the irony but I went about six seven years ago and uh first time I ever met John Williams and he made a really lovely scrambled egg with some white truffles and that was it Yum. And it was so great. <laughs> it was so great, but I can't define that as the best. Maybe one of the most delicious, like mind blowing things. It was so simple. <sighs> the best dish I've ever eaten. I can't do it. Can you? What's yours? No, no you can't possibly it's turn impossible. it around on me. But no, that's a no, very come good. On, tell me, what's yours? <laughs> no, Gizzy. <laughs> maybe for the hundredth episode, you can. Yeah, ask me. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll take over for the hundredth episode, and I'm going to interview you. Got it. Um, I, you know. It's like, you know, the best, the best whole meal of my life was probably going to, uh, I can never say this, Estrabari. Yeah. In, uh, just outside San Sebastian in Basque country and went there with, um, two very good friends of mine, one of them being Neil Rankin, the chef. And it's so phenomenal. You know, it's in the middle of the hills. It's almost like you're in Austria or somewhere. It, it's sort of really mountainous and there's goats everywhere. And the houses are really, I don't know what you'd refer to them as, but they're kind of like, um, alpine almost. And, uh, which obviously doesn't work with the area, you know, it's sort of really messed with my head. You just got this restaurant, which is entirely based around this amazing grill and the grill and a wood fire oven. And that's how they do all their cookery. And there's a lot of curing and fermenting and, and then going into sort of like slow, like one of the really cool things was doing like carabineros, you know, the prawns, but putting them on the end of the smoker and they're smoked, sorry, the end of the grill. So they smoked almost in, in a sous vide style where actually they come out perfectly cooked smoky and then the the, the brains are all beasky because they melted you know where they normally go still yeah. like gel i mean that is just such brilliant cooking and so simple and simple like just yeah. salt salt and a prawn but just down to that cook and suddenly you got the most delicious dish ever or you know making pre pre cured like a, a chopped Iberico um, tartare, which was like chorizo Ooh. with extra big bits of fat in it. And it's just, all right, you know, so dissecting these dishes and going, okay, cool. Like this all makes so much sense. Fantastic wines, great company in the middle of nowhere and this fantastic air that was like washing in and these, in this beautiful building. It was stunning. It was a stunning meal. That 
sounds incredible. <laughs> Your time at Leeds led to you getting an internship with the BBC Good Food magazine, which kickstarted your career in food writing. And I was really interested to see an Instagram post you did the other day where you explained that you wrote your first book at the age of 28. But before then, you did spend many years ghostwriting books for other people, didn't you? I did, yeah. Don't ask me who they were. <laughs> I think you're not really allowed to tell. I mean, I just don't know. I don't know if you are allowed or not, but I just have never, never told unless you get me drunk. But <laughs> sometimes I do. <laughs> well, funny you should mention that. Um, but I think that's really interesting because I love hearing how people got to where they are. Firstly, that there's no one route, but also secondly, that behind every overnight success in inverted commas, there's so many years hard oh work God. before that. I don't think I was an overnight success, actually. I think I, my Jenny, like anyone who's been in that sort of side of the industry will have known me from you know, running on, on TV shows. I mean, that's how I got known to do... I mean, I, I went to BBC Good Food magazine. I won an intern placement at the end of my time at Leeds because I worked my blooming ass off and I went in for this prize and sort of got it. And it was Barney Desmasri at Good Food, took me under his wing and was probably one of my first real mentors. Um, but then towards the end of my time at Good Food, I was there for almost a year and Bar, um, Barney and one of the publishers put me... We were in the Good Food show in Birmingham and doing a sort of warm-up act, me and my friend Jane Hornby, who's a brilliant food writer also. She's, um, we were hopeless doing this demo. She's actually kind of good. I was hopeless. I was so terrified. It's not my natural habitat doing any of this. And then, you know, pinged an avocado into the audience because it was like, I wanted a has and it was a fuete and, you know, (laughs) peel them. Oh, pinged it by accident. I thought you meant like in fury. No, it like (laughs) slid out my hand and like went pinged into the audience, landed on some old lady's lap. It was... It was just a disaster. But then someone came in with this big bunch of flowers and was like, we want to sign you. I was like, say what? <laughs> I, was li- I was about to walk off crying. But I think because I, I talk a lot and I'm, I don't know, people say I, I've got quite a big personality, which I'm pretty much assured I do. I think people were kind of interested. And also, you know, it was interesting. You know, I had sides of my head shaved and, but I didn't want to do it, you know? So I, 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 I didn't want to do the TV side of things. Hmm, not at all. That's so interesting to me that you say that that didn't come naturally to you. Cause I think anyone watching, you do come across really so natural and you're never nervous. I just, I've just never aspired to it, maybe. And I think that, you know, you hear about all of these things about people getting picked up, you know, running behind the scenes and you imagine these people put themselves in that, in that role. You know, I loved the, you know, when I left Leith, you know, I was a jobbing food writer and stylist and, a lot of the times, that was the work that was there. And I worked on a lot of the behind the scenes as a, as a home egg. It wasn't my favorite part of what I've ever done. It was a lot of jobs I did to get paid. And before long, you get to know like a lot of the, the um, producers on these shows. Before long, you, people were just starting asking me to like, go up for these jobs. And I was like, what? why does this keep happening to me? It's not like I don't want this. And then before, but then suddenly, there's quite a small scene and people presume that you do. And then the first TV I did was actually a show called Taste, which was within the production company that I was running on. Okay. So, um, and I did it to help someone out. And it was not really, like I said, what I would have necessarily chosen. But then the guy who did it was such a lovely man and he really helped support me. And I was spotted for Cook Yourself then on that. And maybe in a weird way, you not being like sort of desperate to do it was part of what made them want you to do it. Like it wasn't sort of... I don't know, you weren't yeah, sort maybe. of desperate to be on TV. I don't know. Maybe, but I don't know, because in the second you were asked to go up for these auditions, should we say, call them, you're putting yourself out there in the fact that you do. But it was just something, it took a long, it was never, 
know, somebody who wants to be an actress or an actor or a pop star or, you know, you put yourself in that position for, I think, when you're quite young to be actually, this is, I want to, I want to yeah. be in the public eye. I didn't, you know. So the fact that I made a career out of it is quite weird. <laughs> But it is the least favourite part of my job. I, you know. We're on to the fourth and possibly most important question of the day. What is your favourite sandwich? Can I answer two things to every question? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not odd. very strict at all. Yeah, cool. I mean, a sausage sandwich with really chewy white bread with butter and a combination of ketchup and brown sauce is the dream sandwich. But I do love a tartine. And um, at Mare Street, we did these amazing ones which were you know a grilled sourdough with some we did like um uh veal jus mayo and then some very thinly sliced roast rare roast beef with awesome train which is the beetroot and horseradish uh watercress and then some straw fries and smoked salt and that was out pretty outrageous yeah that sounds pretty delicious sandwich saying that oh god i'm so rubbish an egg and cress sandwich. It's hard to beat as a simple classic, isn't it? Oh, I know. St. John do the best egg sandwich in the in the world. Oh, really? It's so great. Again, big chewy bread, um, rimmed bread, and then loads of butter, really good egg mayo, few capers, and more cre- bit proper cress. And see, so I think some people think it's weird to put butter in an egg mayo sandwich, but what? I am not in that. Butter in every yeah, sandwich. I, I hate it when people don't butter like, bread. Do you put butter if you're having peanut butter? No. Oh. See, I, that's weird. <laughs> that's completely weird. What are you doing? <laughs> Is that weird? That's completely weird. Okay, Only let's because move on. It's like, it's, I don't know. I've never done it. Maybe it's not weird. Maybe you've completely... You've got to try it. Yeah, I'm going to. So Cook Yourself Thin was just sort of your, your biggest TV break, wasn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, it was, a, it was a primetime... I mean, I've done primetime shows since, but it was a big primetime uh, Channel 4 show. And how did you find it? Oh, I every minute of it. Did you? Yeah. Even like, because you had that really cool incinerator that you like put all the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a weird experience and I think the girls would be, it would be fair to say this now, you know, years on and that we are actually friends. I lived in Hackney. We filmed it around the corner from here and I would walk to work and they'd all go from work to Chelsea okay. or film together in a cab and I'd be like, I was definitely the, the sort of black sheep of the family and it was not, yeah, our relationship wasn't tight. We had very different attitudes and things towards that. Actually, Sophie and I always got on very, very, very well. So you weren't a group of friends. You were put together for the like show. A, like a pop okay. <laughs> scenario. It was weird. Again, not my natural habitat. I, I was inhibited. I, do you know what? The producer of that, Joe McGrath, is one of the people, I, another mentor I owe a lot to. Um, but the first series I really struggled with because they inhibited me as a cook as well. And they just were like, I, I things that I should have said no to. And now I would have definitely have said no to them, such as, oh, I wanted to make a curry and they wouldn't let me do the curry I wanted. And then they were like, let's just do chicken tikka masala because that's what this person eats. I was like, okay, fine. You know, and then I went off and made a lovely marinade for the, for tikkering the chicken wanted to do a really hard roast. So I really developed this amazing dish, made it two sauces sauce in two separate ways and blended them together like it's too complicated. I was like, okay. In the end, it was like, you're going to use a chicken tikka marinade and, you know, make a sauce out of tin tomatoes. And I mean, and that's basically what they wanted, really easy food. Yeah. And it's not me. That's not how I cook. Yeah, it's not your style. And I, I went with it and I'm so embarrassed. That, that first 
series uh yeah not not for me no, then it's I a got... learning experience yeah. isn't it and you can't say no at the beginning mm. you sort of you definitely did the right thing yeah I think so but then it's also you feel really you know my integrity was definitely pushed to a point where I was unhappy and wasn't getting on with the girls massively and and I didn't you know the whole process wasn't great I actually towards the end because I was also not very good on telly I just generally I think people are very sweet saying I am the reality was I actually got fired from Cook Yourself then at the end, which was very strange because when it came back years later, yeah. I did it on my own. That's so weird. So it was so weird um, that they actually got, they got me to do it on my own after that. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, from both the channel and, and in-house at Tiger, they both were like, nah, this isn't for you. We don't think telly's for you. Fast forward 18 months we'd like to offer you get yourself in well it just shows your a door is never shut forever oh yeah it was really cool and i think it was just down towards the end i think people were recognizing that i i just do have a voice actually and i need to be heard sometimes <laughs> a lot of the time all the time <laughs> the fifth desert island dish what's the dish you eat the most often <sighs> again a hard one i love pasta i could i would kill i actually you know like i i have to have pasta at least two or three times a week just you know again and, and it's because I love carbohydrates and I love making a good ragu or, you know, being clever with, you know, my, one of my favorite pasta dishes is when you cook down, sort of really slowly cook some garlic and chilies and anchovies, a bit of lemon and then some blanched kale and then blitzing that into a pesto, you know, and that is really delicious. So I'll have that once a week often. I really just love a simple pomodoro as well. Yeah. You know, I just, I really love pasta. I'm so happy when I'm eating pasta. Yeah, Some you, people are bread people. No, not. You had for noodles. You had me at pasta. Yeah. <laughs> and so let, let's talk about the book. It's called Slow and I can't wait to see it. So since you brought out your first book, you've written a cookbook every two years, haven't you? That's amazing. It's pretty great. I'm very lucky that I'm still getting asked to do them and having the opportunities because, you know, some of them have done really, really well, sold, you know, hundreds of thousands and some of them have sold i mean season's eating's totally bombed <laughs> well it didn't bomb that's not true but compar comparatively um it didn't do that well to what i'm really surprised by that because i always see people talking about that. so do i as yeah. well um i don't know it just it's sold a, a tiny percentage and often you know you're only good as your last book film whatever and I, there was this moment where I thought, fuck, I'm not going to get uh, another another book or another go at this. But you did. Um, and but I, I did. And your this, seventh. Yeah. And I changed publisher um, for no other reason other than, you know, often people think that they, they want to define what you do next. And I didn't want to do the option that they wanted. I, it wasn't for me. And so I had this idea about doing a book about, you know, conscientious eating and I really wanted to do it because I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm 39 years old now, doing this a very long time. You know, I've, because of Cook Yourself, then I had the privilege to be able to write about sort of healthy eating and having it from a slightly obnoxious perspective as well. Yeah, so, and I got an opportunity to write two good books because I had a real attitude problem when it came down to seeing how the healthy eating industry was being marketed and what people were saying was healthy i was like well why is a delicious stew not healthy it's got vegetables in it it's got a small amount of meat it's been slow cooked it's got you serve it with more veg you know why is this considered not healthy yet eating like spiralized courgette with an avocado and pea pesto is i could never get my head around that and i was always very frustrated so i would you know i went out and wrote two cookbooks based around that and they both did really well 
but I really wanted to do something which stood for something. And I've never wanted to be on the cover of my books. Oh, yeah. So this is the first one that you're not on the cover. Yeah. And I've always asked from day one from, you know, Kitchen Magic. I was like, I really don't want to be on this. Kitchen Magic was actually going to be called something completely different. And it was about, it was a a cookery manual, actually. And, you know, the second that the salespeople get involved and, you know, people, that's the truth about publishing is it's often it's not even up to the, the author. And you're, you're guided and I can kick up a stink as often as I can, but it just, you know, ultimately the salespeople or the, the editors will win that, will win that. And, you know, in this instance, I found a publisher who are, they're part of a, and they're called HQ and they're a part of HarperCollins and they are a young publishing house, which are going towards people. They want people with voices and they came to me and I, we would never have gone to them otherwise, I don't think. And I have been so great. Everything that I've wanted to write about, I've been allowed to. They've taken me off the cover. This book has meaning. It's, it's about not just slow food and cookery. It's about slowing down the, the idea of processing and processing within, within the technical side of cookery, but also in how we pr- produce our food and understanding that, you know, what things are meant to be like and actually putting in that a little bit of extra groundwork. So why, why is it that we're making fresh pasta? You know, yes, you know, and, and only do it in context. You know, if you're making a ragu, it's meant to be served with tagliatelle or, or, or pappardelle. And, you know, I, I will have that with hard pasta, you know, like proper, proper spaghetti or linguine, because that's kind of what we don't really understand that as a whole. And that's maybe what I've been brought up with. I love spaghetti bolognese, even though it probably shouldn't be done like that. But let's, you know what, let's make a delicious ragu and let's make our own fresh pasta and let's eat it how it should be eaten and then enjoy those things and be proud of technique and what we can do. And let's not patronize the reader and in, in suggesting that they can't cook like this. Because every single time in the media I'm asked to write recipes, it's like, Gizzy, give us your favorite quick and easy recipes. I'm like, oh, if I come home oh, and I want to eat something quickly, I'll probably have like a really delicious tomato salad and maybe, I don't know, a chunk of cheese. That's my quick food. Yeah. I don't, I love technique. And I'm, you know, the great news about doing these slow cooked things is that you can freeze them and they're still delicious. You've got your own ready meals, you know. And also they're, they're not a lot of hands on time. So like the no. cooking time is ages, exactly. but they're not complicated, are exactly. they? Exactly. Uh, and you ask anyone what their favorite foods are. You know, I'm sure you are an expert at this, but <laughs> what you do, like most of them, I imagine will be a braise of some sort or something roasted. And then it begs, makes me want to stand up for producers. You know, I've actually didn't done dedicate this whole book to producers actually and and chefs and revolutionaries in our industry which are changing how we shop and eat and you know produce our food because they're behind the scenes they're working tirelessly to do radical things uh, which we don't even know about but they'll they'll hit the sort of supermarkets or whatever or even even not the supermarkets maybe maybe the the shops we say food shops (laughs) and it's just i you know my hat goes off to these people because they really care. Arti- you know, people who have this artisanal attitude towards making produce are just like, you know. Yeah, so important. So important. And, but I don't want it to be like a weird middle class problem that, you know, I don't think it has to be these days. No. So we're going to talk about the sixth desert island dish. And that's your go-to dinner party dish. Oof. Right. Well, I've got to admit that when we said at the beginning I, about not being domestic, I really am not that domestic in that I don't really have dinner parties. If you're coming around my house... And I'm going to feed you more often than not. It'll be for a roast okay. um, on a Sunday because I love doing a roast dinner. And yeah. it's often the only time I'm off 
because remember I'm a professional cook and I don't have that much time off as you well know the other thing is if if it, if it is at supper time I'll, I'll be like invite like four friends around you'll sit down you'll talk to me while I'm making something which may be I, I mean, often it'll be a braise actually there's a really good recipe in the book which is quite um it's a take on uh cocovin, but it's with um rusty wine like with orange wine and shallots and it is delicious so I think sort of something like that with a big salad and maybe some mash would be would be something that sounds good yeah would you serve a pudding no I'm, I'm rubbish <laughs> my favorite pudding secretly is chopped up bananas a lick of jersey cream and crumbled up flake oh my god it's that sounds so good, so good. If, like a cheats pudding if you're like yeah, I like that like a really, really easy banoffee pies yeah oh god then no a lick of um some um well, don't you do that in there? Would be. Oh, yeah. Have I never done that? Yeah. Hello. I'm <laughs> <No>, having that. <laughs> <It's happening. laughs> um, on Desert Island Dishes, we have like a cookbook hall of fame. What's your favorite ever cookbook? Again, impossible for me to choose my favorite ever. Ah, oh, I'm clearly the most indecisive person of all time. Cookery writer wise, I mean, people like Claudia Roden, Alice Waters, you know, those are the people that I couldn't live without. I mean, I love Robert Carrier. Love, you know, uh, Nigel Slater, obviously. People like that I, I adore. But I guess the one book, oh, Thai Food by David Thompson. Ooh. I love that. It taught me so much. But then maybe Larry's Gastronome. I mean, it's not really a cookbook. It's a, it's a book about sort of the language um, of cookery. And I used to sleep on it. I used to go to bed and, with it under my pillow thinking it would make me cleverer. Oh my God, I, <laughs> I used to do that. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it ever When worked. I was about 18 years old, when I first started cooking, I was like, I'm going to know everything in this book. My mum told me that before my GCSEs. I literally slept with like folders under my pillow. Really? Like the oh, princess and the pea. Do you think it works? I don't know, Gizzy. Probably not. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going with a no, but... Check us out. We're doing all right. <laughs> We're on to the final desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I'm going to have oysters. And I'm really trashy when it comes to oysters. I'm a rock oyster, not a uh, native person. Okay. Because I don't know why, actually. I should be native. But I just prefer them as a whole. Then, and then I also eat them and really, like, Rich Corrigan was is disgusted at me. Every time I eat an oyster, it was like, I have to put Pour out the brine, yeah, um, or the the salt water. Squeeze on some lemon juice, bit of the uh, min- mignonette vinegar, and then loads of Tabasco. So I put everything on it. So it's more like a ceviche by the end of it. Okay, it's really there's nothing, good. There's nothing wrong with that. But then I can have a hundred of those, and then like a grilled shellfish platter, which would be like longestine with like garlic butter and longestine and scallops and massive carabineros prawns, and then I would have roast beef and Yorkshire pudding and a really good proper gravy and horseradish and then all really crispy roast potatoes spring greens baby carrots roasted uh, my mum's pickled cabbage uh, red cabbage and then I'm gonna have rhubarb crumble <laughs> but proper old school rhubarb crumble with no I don't want oats in it I just want crumble and I want a bright pink really lovely rhubarb but when it's banging season and then i want birds custard to ruin it i'm so sorry but i do that's what i want that sounds heavenly i don't know why we recorded this before lunch <laughs> i know my I'm stomach rubbing. actually I'm just sure rumbled proper breakfast <laughs> gizzy asking those were your desert islanders <laughs> thank you so much I mean, I was never in doubt that Gizzy would choose some awesome dishes, but there were so many delicious goodies in there. 
It was really hard to pick a dish for my recipe inspiration this week as they all sounded so good. And rather counterintuitively, given Gizzy's love of technique and slow cooking, I went with one of the most simple dishes she talked about. So head to desertislanddishes.co to find the recipe. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tell all your friends, the more the merrier. (laughs) And I will see you next time for more Desert Island Dishes. Bye.